Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. And our scripture this morning comes from Exodus 6, 28 through 7, 13. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Morning, friends. If you're visiting, uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Uh, For the rest of you, uh, my wife and I just got back from a two-week trip to Israel, which was amazing. And so if you have about 13 hours and want to look at a thousand pictures to have a cup of coffee with me, I'm happy to tell you more about it. But it's good to be back. You know, I wonder when you hear the word Egypt, like we just heard in our text read, I wonder what comes to mind for you. I think for many of us, probably pyramids, mummies, maybe Indiana Jones, Uh, Sphinx, maybe the Nile River, maybe hieroglyphics, and those all make sense. Um, But even though those are things we know about Egypt, I think for most of us, we probably don't realize that the reason we know those things about Egypt, um, and we think of all the things you will see from Egypt in museums, is because for over 500 years in the ancient world, Egypt was an international superpower. They weren't just like producing things for us to go visit in museums. They were, the reason we know so much about them is because they were an incredibly advanced society. I mean, there were a lot of other ancient Near Eastern peoples that we only know them by name maybe, but don't really know much about what they did. But the Egyptians we do know because of how advanced and influential they were. And So from a lot of things we know about Egyptian culture, we actually know quite a bit about what it was like for Moses and Aaron, what kind of culture they were encountering. We know that the Egyptians were obsessed 
with holding back decay and death. So they invent this form of embalming and what we think of the pyramids and mummies. That was something they did. We know that they revered a lot of things in nature and saw them as symbols of God. So frogs are very important. They represent fertility. Cows represent birth and, and being maternal. Um, dung beetles represent immortality, things like that. Obviously, they have a very advanced writing system, but a writing system of hieroglyphics that it took us until the 19th century to be able to interpret, actually, thanks to the Rosetta Stone, if you know that story. That's how we were able to finally figure out what hieroglyphics, how they work. But they really emphasize seeing, and they really emphasize images, and that's going to be important for our story as well. And we also know they really valued technology and administration. They did a lot to try to control nature, and they built the pyramids, obviously, which we still don't know fully how they were able to do that. They built storage cities, and they figured out all kinds of ways to manipulate nature. When we were in Israel, we went to the uh, big Israel Museum in, in Jerusalem, and there was one exhibit that was all about like eating and feasting in the ancient Near Eastern world, which is very interesting. And one little section of it, the whole thing of it, was dedicated to Egyptian beer. That you know, thousands of years ago, they figured out the process of fermenting beer. That's the kind of stuff they did. And maybe most importantly for our story, what we know about Egyptian culture is that they believed that the pharaoh, the king, was actually a god, and that all other humans are basically just slaves and servants to serve and submit to this completely sovereign, singular human who's actually a god. There's no politics in ancient Egypt. There's no you know, political parties or anything. It's very clear there's a god at the top and everybody else serves them. Now, the reason this is all important is because the Bible is going to intersect a lot with Egypt, with ancient Egypt. In fact, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, the whole last third of it all concerns Egypt. You may remember that Joseph gets sold into slavery and ends up there. And as a result, um, all of Israel ends up in Egypt. And that's how the whole last part of, of Genesis focuses. And then our book that we're going through this summer, or the first part of it anyways, Exodus, is all about Egypt here at the beginning as well. Egypt is this power and it intersects deeply with what God is doing in the world. And if you know anything about the Bible, You've probably heard of the 10 plagues that God brought upon Egypt, and that's what we're going to be looking at next week, and we're going to see God's power displayed in those. But our text for today is really the preamble to that. And there's a lot of conflict that's been happening for hundreds of years between the Israelites and the Egyptians. The Israelites are slaves. They are at the bottom of society, and now God has called this man Moses— who grew up as a prince of Egypt, even though he was a Hebrew. He spent decades in exile. He's come back, and God's calling him and his older brother Aaron to be the instruments of the agents through which God's people are going to be delivered from Egypt. And so today we're going to look at this kind of boiling point of tension right before the plagues that Pastor Kevin will deal with next week. And so we're going to look at 6.28 through 7.13. If you have a Bible, it would be great for you to look along with me. There's a Bible in front of you in the racks. It's on page 49, or you can pull it up on your phone. It's good to follow. And, and what we're going to do is I just want to retell this very brief. It's a very short story, 
And then I want to ask two questions that I think, uh, maybe, they, maybe they already caught your ear, but there's a couple of questions that this text raises for us that I want to address and then just ask how it applies to us today. So if you look in Exodus chapter 6, in verses 28 to 30, we, again, we see that God again tells Moses to go again to Pharaoh. When he had come back to Egypt, he went once and Pharaoh did not listen and it actually made it worse for the Israelites because Pharaoh said, why would I let, let you people go? You are my slaves. And so he doubled their work and made it more difficult for them. So now the Israelites are mad at Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh is mad at Moses and Aaron. And so God tells him to go again. And Moses objects once again. I mean, he, he struggles and he says, I don't have the ability to do this. And and it's actually a ridiculous idea, God. There's no way the Pharaoh is going to let us go. I mean, there's just no way. He's a God. We are his slaves. We serve his society. And it's only going to get worse for us. So look at what God says to Moses in response in chapter 7. 7-1. Seven, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You're to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. That's the plagues we'll see next week. And I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know then that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. And then let your eyes go down to verse 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. <clears throat> so what's happened is Pharaoh has said to Moses and Aaron, who is your God? I don't even know your God. It's, he's invisible and I don't even know his name. I'm not going to listen to you. So God's plan is to say, okay, you want a visible thing? Moses, you take Aaron along. And just like Pharaoh has priests that do his bidding, Aaron will be your priest, and you will be like a god to him. In other words, I, I will show you who the true god is in the world, and yet it's not going to work, at least not initially. And as happens, as you saw in the story or heard read before, Moses, Pharaoh is going to ask for a sign, <clears throat> like, why would I do this? Show me a sign of this. And so Aaron throws down his rod, and it turns into some kind of reptile. Now, why that? It's very interesting. Why is that the sign? We actually, back in chapter 4 of Exodus, something similar happened when God called Moses out in the wilderness. You may remember, God told Moses to throw his staff down, his shepherd's staff, and it became a snake, and then he picked it back up. So this is similar but there's something more going on here in Exodus chapter 7. In fact, rabbis and scholars for a long time have observed that the word that it says that when Aaron threw down his rod and it became this kind of reptile, it's not actually the normal word for snake. It's not the word from chapter 4. It's not the more common word. It's a word that means something more like a monstrous snake or maybe a, if you're a Harry Potter fan, a basilisk or something or um, some huge creature, maybe even like a monster crocodile. And of course, it's not a real specific term. In fact, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it translates as, as dragon, right? So it's, some, it's communicating some like really powerful creature. 
And again, it's not a specific scientific term, so we don't, don't know for sure what it is, but the point is that this is a symbol that the Egyptians would have known as very powerful. Again, they're revering all of these, these creatures in the world as connected to different gods. And in fact, there's a very old Egyptian story before this time of a court official who made a wax crocodile because his wife had had an affair and he put it in the water and the crocodile went and killed the man who had had an affair with his wife and then he picked it back up and it turned back into a wax crocodile. So in other words, God's playing on their home court. He's saying, you want to talk about crocodiles? You want to talk about snakes? We'll show you the situation here with Aaron doing this. In fact, we have a lot of Egyptian drawings of these priests holding like a staff that's, that's stiff with like a, it's, it's a snake of some sort. And we actually know that down to today, Egyptian um, snake charmers had discovered that there's a certain species of cobra, big cobra, that you can put your thumb on the right nerve and it'll kind of make it go paralyzed. So maybe that's what's going on. But the point is, God knows what he's doing here in sending Moses and Aaron into this very tense situation and telling them to perform this sign. Now, that's as far as our story goes. And there's a lot that, you know, we can learn from about God's power over creation, for sure, God's compassion to rescue his people. And the rest of the story of the Exodus is going to be about this. But for today, before we get to the plagues next week, I want to ask and try to answer for you two questions, two, I think, kind of difficult questions that when I read this text come to mind for me, and maybe they did for you as well. And the first one is this. <clears throat> How did the, these Egyptian magicians do this miracle? Right? I think it's a fair question. If you're just reading through it, it's kind of unexpected. You expect Aaron to have this power, but Pharaoh calls his magicians and they do the same thing. Maybe it's just a trick, right? We do, again, know that going a long time back in Egyptian history, there is this trick of being able to turn a certain kind of snake stiff. I don't even want to think about the learning curve on that um, and how they figured that out, but it's possible that. But it's also very possible that there is something supernatural at work here. In other words, there are spiritual powers in the world, and not everything that is supernatural is necessarily from God. I mean, after all, we're so used to, in the modern West, thinking of the world in this kind of closed, contained, scientific, medical way, which is all fine, but that's not the biblical understanding, and it's not really what you think either. There is something more than just the material. There is a world, the Bible says, that is beyond just what you and I see and taste and touch. And even within medicine, there are things that they don't understand and why things happen. And the Bible constantly talks about that there's a, there's a spiritual reality, there's a realm beyond what we see. There's so many places we could go to think about that, but I thought of 2 Kings 6, you may remember the story where the people of Aram are attacking the Israelites and Elisha the prophet is there and he's not worried, but his servant is really worried. And so Elisha prays that God would open the eyes of his servant to see what's really going on. And you may remember the story from 2 Kings 6, he, the servant's eyes are open and he sees that actually the hills are full of some kind of angelic army and, and indeed the, the Israelites win the battle by all the people of Aram going blind. 
that's just one little story from the Bible about the fact that there is a spiritual realm beyond what we see. And again, not all supernatural or spiritual things necessarily come from God. I think of what Jesus said in Matthew 7 when he warns against false prophets who even do things like cast out demons, and yet it turns out they never really knew him. They are only playing. They're deceived and deceiving. Or I think of Paul in Acts chapter 16 when he encounters this young girl who's demon-possessed and she somehow has the ability to tell the future. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but she's delivered through Paul's ministry. Or even what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, there are spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues and all these other things, yet it's possible to kind of use them in a showy way that's not really from God without love. And again, in our modern world, we just we don't, just don't even think about this. So whatever's going on here with these magicians, whether it's just a snake charming trick or a, an actual supernatural thing, what I don't want you to miss is what the story actually says, which is that even though it looks like Moses and Aaron failed in this story because the Egyptian magicians do the same thing, did you catch that little detail of what happens? Then Aaron's reptile or snake or crocodile or whatever it is eats up and swallows all the others. And the picture there is very clear that God is really in control. That's the power. That's the, that's the point is God's power. So that's one question. But I think there's a, a more difficult question that comes from this text, and I'm curious if your ear caught it. I think it probably did. And that's the second question. That is, what is going on with this language that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What does that mean? Well, first to clarify, the Bible uses a lot of metaphors, the body metaphors to refer to various things. And heart in the Bible means, not so, for us it means basically just kind of emotions, but heart in the Bible is is a more important metaphor even. It means your whole person. It means like the who you really are in the inside. It means your, your thoughts and your affections, your emotions and your reasoning, kind of your control center, really your, your character. And so what does it mean in the Bible for your heart to be hardened? What kind of sclerosis is this? For your heart to be hardened in the Bible means that you have become stubborn. It means that you have rejected any teachable, you know, any teachability. You've rejected seeing things other than the way you see them. There's a, there's a stubbornness. Another metaphor that the Bible uses is, is stiff-necked. It's like you can only see things one way, and, and it's a very, it's a numbness to, to feelings. It's a numbness to what is right or wrong. It's just whatever you think is the right way. And I don't think we have to think very long to recognize there are people like that. And I mean, I think if we're honest, we are sometimes like that. I can think of times, situations, usually caused by stress or anxiety or hurt, where I just get kind of stubborn-hearted towards the situation. And that's what this image means, to be hard-hearted. But then the question is, what in the world does it mean and why is it okay for us to read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? And it's actually not just here in, in Exodus 7.3. Back in 
Exodus 4.21, that's what God said to Moses. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And actually, it's going to occur 10 more times from Exodus 4 to 14. Those chapters, 10 times it's going to say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How does that make you feel? I think when we read this, I think many of us feel kind of anxious about that, actually. Because it doesn't seem to accord with other things we know about God in the Bible, that he's loving, he is love, that he's gracious and kind and compassionate and always does what is right, that he's just. So how in the world can it be that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and all those other things are true in the Bible as well? Well, if you wrestle with that, I just want to say it's okay to feel that way. God's not worried. God's not anxious. And it's okay to, to kind of wrestle and think about those things. God and the Bible are not worried about you asking those difficult questions. In fact, I think this is an opportunity for us to think carefully, to put our, debts, our nets out into the, into the deep and, and see if there might be something to understand that we haven't thought through enough. So here's the question. What's going on? Well, it turns out this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, as I said, it's not only in our verse, it's 10 times here, and it even kind of frames the whole story. It's like the outer story of the whole Exodus thing going on is that we're told at the beginning in chapter 4, and then in chapter 11, and in between, God actually is actively hardening his heart. But what you may not have noticed is that in addition to those 10 times where it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart, there's another 10 times where we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And that in response to the situations, his heart became hard without God doing it. In fact, next week we'll see when we're in the plagues, it's not until the sixth of the 10 plagues that we learn that God actually hardened Pharaoh's heart. Every time before that, in every one of the plagues, it says in response to that, Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Israelites. Five times in a row, it says that. And then even after the seventh plague, and there's going to be a pattern we'll see where he sees the plague, experiences the negative effects of it, says, I'm sorry, you're right, and then says, okay, you can go, and then immediately hardens his heart. After the seventh plague, it says twice, Pharaoh and his officials, after they saw the hailstorm had been relieved of the effects and it stopped, then he said he hardened his heart against it. So what do we do with that? Well, we have to recall that, you know, Pharaoh's not an innocent bystander in this whole situation, right? He's not just this sort of poor guy who God's hardening his heart. It's very clear from the beginning that he is a very evil person. Going back to Exodus 1 and 2, he is killing all the babies of the Israelites so that he can you know, prevent them from multiplying more. That's where Moses' story comes from. He's drawn out of the water and saved. We see that throughout the plagues, again, he's going to, as I said, have this pattern of where he sees the damage of it and then re relents of that. And then as soon as the, the hailstorm stops or the frogs go away, then he hardens his heart against it again. And and I don't know if you've thought about this, that what's happening with the plagues that we'll see next week is that it causes, they cause incredible pain and suffering to the Egyptian people. And even in the midst of that, Moses, or sorry, Pharaoh is unwilling 
to let the Israelites go. He just keeps hardening his heart. He's obstinate. He's stubborn. He's, he's stiff-necked. And then at the end of all of this, the very famous story where the Israelites finally are let go after Pharaoh's own firstborn son dies, they're in the wilderness and Pharaoh changes his mind and says, well, I'm going to go kill them now. And that's where the story happens where the Israelites are up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh's coming down upon them. Even though he said they could go, he's changed his heart and he's set against them. So we first need to just acknowledge Pharaoh is not an innocent bystander in this whole scenario. He is a callous and evil person. But we still have to ask, how does this work? Well, if you think about it, again, the outer frame of the story speaks about God's sovereign control. And yet the inside of the story emphasizes that Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. How do those go together? Well, friends, that is one of the most profound mysteries of the Bible. It's really one of the most profound mysteries of what it means to be human. At one level, we could talk about the the dilemma or the mystery of nature versus nurture. Are we predestined for things or, or genetically disposed towards things, or do we make choices? But this is even bigger than that. It's in the same kind of category, but it's even bigger. And we call it God's sovereignty, his control over all things, and also human responsibility. That God is completely in control, and humans, we're not robots. We actually have agency. We have responsibility. We have choices that we make. And really, putting those together, it is a profound mystery, And if you've been around, the analogy I'm about to use is one I use all the time because I just can't find anything better, and that is that the truest things, the deepest truths are always a knife edge where it's easy to fall off one side or the other rather than hold together in harmony and tension what the Bible itself does. On the one side, you could fall off on a kind of determinism that I'm a victim, I can't control anything, God's, God's sovereignty means that I am just a robot. On the other side a kind of human autonomy. I can do what I want, and I, you know, I can do whatever I, I think. The Bible actually holds together those things that we tend to pull apart. In fact, if you look at the Christian tradition, you can actually find denominations that are this way and denominations that are this way as well, and people that are on either side. But the Bible always holds together these deep truths in this tension, in this mysterious harmony, and we have to do the same. And I think what God is showing us from this, you know, 20 times about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, 10 times God doing it, 10 times him doing it, is that there is a mysterious reality in the human heart that simultaneously God is sovereign and does his purposes, and we are also responsible. What we do, the little choices we make matter. And you can imagine with this story, it's so weighty and raises this question. There have been a lot of great scholars that have thought about it, and I've read a lot about it. And i just read you a couple of quotes that I find, found helpful of kind of holding this together. One scholar says that the idea of God's hardening Pharaoh's heart is that God utilizes a man's natural proclivity toward evil, and he accentuates it in the process of furthering God's own historical purposes. In other words, it's in Pharaoh... And God, you know, uses that. Another scholar says, God is not so much pulling a puppet's strings as allowing 
the oppressor king, the Pharaoh here, to persist in his habitual harsh willfulness and presumption. Maybe most helpful, one commentator said this way, Pharaoh's heart becoming increasingly set in his ways and God hardening it shows us that at some point with Pharaoh being stiff-necked, choosing to harden his heart, being an evil and callous person, at some point there was a point of no return that he crossed in the hardening of his own heart that at the same time then is the just consequence of God hardening his heart. And there's a mystery there. I, I think of Romans chapter 1. If you know this, the, in the New Testament, the book of Romans, Paul talks about that we humans worship and love the wrong things. We love created things more than the creator. And as we give ourselves over to worshiping created things, our minds become more darkened. And then we are giving ourselves over to perverse things. And then that disables us from seeing God clearly. This is how the human soul works. And maybe we could just sum it up as the Bible affirms that God is completely in control and is doing his will, and we are fully responsible. And so what's our part in this? Well, for our part, I think we can sum it up with this little phrase that as we do, so we become. As we do, so we become. We can talk about that spiritually. We can talk about it psychologically. We can talk about it neurologically. That what's happening in our brains, that every choice we make makes it easier to make that choice again and more difficult to make the opposite choice. Have you seen this? Whether it's in diet or exercise or relationships, I walked by the kitchen, I'm trying to lose weight, and that pile of snickerdoodles... And I even said to myself, I should not eat a snickerdoodle right now. And I ate a snickerdoodle, right? And then the next day, it made it easier to eat another snickerdoodle, right? In small things and in big things, this is how the soul works. This is how God has made us. We are habituated and habituating creatures that as we do, so we become. And there's a mystery in that. But at some point, the choices we make make us. The choices we make can get us to a point of a point of no return where it's almost impossible not to make that choice. And that's what we call an addiction. I mean, it is possible with intervention, but the point is, I think what's happening here in Pharaoh's story is an insight into our own lives. It's meant for us to say, as we do, so we become. And there's a mystery that is in it, but that God is not unjust in any of this, and the giving over of ourselves to our evil is not unjust and does happen. When I think about this from Jesus' own ministry, I think about what happens in the Gospel of Matthew. You may know that in the first 13 chapters of Matthew, first 12 chapters of Matthew, Jesus is ministering. In chapter 13, he changes his teaching style to teach in parables, He's not teaching like he did in the Sermon on the Mount and earlier. And when he starts teaching in parables, the disciples' response is, and everybody's response is, what are you saying? We have no idea what you mean by this. And he quotes Isaiah and says, I'm teaching in parables so that those 
who do not hear will not be able to hear, and those who do not see will not be able to see. So that's a strong word. I mean, you can't deny that's what it's saying. And at the same time, if you go back and look at chapters 1 to 12, what you see before that happens is that the religious leaders are increasingly opposed to Jesus because what he's saying, what he's teaching is so disruptive to their worldview. And it's, for some of it, maybe it was a power issue, but I think for most of them, it's just, it's so different than how they had been trained to read what God was up to in the Bible, that it was just really hard for them to grasp what he was saying because it cost them so much in their whole way of thinking. And so they increasingly oppose him in chapters eight and nine. They start accusing him of, of being a blasphemer. In chapters 11 and 12, it comes to a high point where they accuse him of being demonic. And in Matthew 12, 14, it says, and they set their minds and got together and decided they were going to kill him. So these are supposed to be the godly leaders of God's people, and they decide they're going to kill this man. And then in chapter 13, he changes his ministry style in this prophetic way that hides from some and reveals to others. That's the same tension that's going on in our story in Pharaoh. And I think it's summed up best in Jesus' words from Matthew 11, right in the midst of all this, my favorite text in the, in the Bible. i read it for you. It says, at that time, Matthew 11, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, those who think they know, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to be by my Father. No one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble and hard, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Do you see that same tension? God is completely in control. We are dead and there's no way we can trust and hope in God unless he reveals himself to us. And at the same time, he says to everyone, come. He's saying to you this morning, come. Come and take my yoke upon you and find rest. That tension, the Bible doesn't resolve. It doesn't resolve. It holds it together. And so the final question then for us today, I think, is what do we do with this? Because again, it'd be easier to resolve the tension on either side rather than to let the Bible speak what it's saying. The reason we study the Bible, the reason why we give time on a Sunday morning to open the Bible and talk about it is because it's from the Bible that we most clearly understand who God is and as the creator, and then secondarily, who we are as ones made in his image. And I think this story this morning, I mean, we could talk about a lot of other great things from this story. God's, again, power is compassion, and we'll see these in the next chapters ahead. But I think this story for today is not just an historical story about this Egyptian guy. It's a message for us. It's a message for us. And you can respond in a couple of different ways. Maybe you're aware of how you're feeling already. Maybe you don't like this idea that God's in control of everything. I understand. It's okay. But you can respond to this story about Pharaoh and his heart with anger, with ambivalence, with frustration, or you can respond with humility. That you can read this story and ask the most important question you can ask, and that is, how might this be true of me? 
Like this story is written for us. It's not just an historical account. It's an invitation from God to pay attention to this mysterious reality of what happens in our lives when we give ourselves over to good or to evil. And while God is completely in control, we still have agency or responsibility. I like how one commentator said it. He said, our fundamental position as the Lord's people is not to know how to work the system, but to how to walk with God. And you know, when the Bible talks about this kind of idea, what it says is something like Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, listen to these echoes, do not harden your hearts and stiffen your necks. In the book of Hebrews, the New Testament is going to repeat that twice as well. Or as Jesus says when he taught in parables, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, are you listening? This isn't just applied to my wife or my husband or my kids. Jesus is saying, are you listening? Do you have ears to hear? Are you willing to look inside? And as I noted, Pharaoh makes choices that at some point cross a line. And that's not what God wants for you. So what do we do on this July 9th, several thousand years separate from Pharaoh? Well, let me just encourage you with humility to step towards the good. Step towards the good that God has in front of you Maybe say that kind word. Because as you do, you will become more kind. Maybe avoid that snarky or cutting comment or complaint. Because as you do, you will become more like that. Maybe think about your spouse, the person who it's easy to really take for granted and maybe just have some hardness of heart because there's been a lot of you know, life together that can numb us? What if you step towards your spouse, for those of you who are married, in kindness? What if you showed up and served others? What if you avoid that temptation that feels really good but doesn't really satisfy? Because you see, when we sin in large or small things, it's not just that it's a moral issue. It's not just a sin issue for which Jesus died and we need forgiveness and can get forgiveness. It's actually a character issue. That every time we give ourselves in thought or in deed to some kind of temptation, it's not only that we're sinning morally before God, we're actually becoming more that kind of person. And that's a sobering thought. And God has something more for you than that. God doesn't want you to go down a path of destruction. God doesn't want that for me. He doesn't want that for you. He wants you to find life. You're made in his image. He wants you to flourish. And so I think the message of of Pharaoh's story for us is to pay attention, to have ears to hear, to, to recognize the power of our choices all under, in a mysterious way, God's absolute sovereignty. I don't know if you've read C.S. Lewis's classic Mere Christianity, but he, he wrestles with this question of like, how do you love your neighbor, really? The second greatest commandment. 
And especially, how do you love your enemy, which Jesus teaches? Because he says, you know, it's actually really easy to love someone you like, right? There's, some, there's always people that we like naturally. There's a natural inclination and affection. And when we love those people, that's great, but that's not really a virtue, right? Just when you're kind to someone you already like, that's awesome, do that. But it's, that's no more of a virtue or a vice than like, I like this food versus this food, Lewis points out. But he says, Christian love is where you actually have something more and more beautiful and more powerful than just the people you already like. And so he says, how do you do this? And here's what he says. The rule for all of this is perfectly simple. Don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets of life. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. And if you injure someone you dislike, you'll actually find yourself disliking them more. If you do a good turn to your enemy, you will find yourself disliking him less. There's a mystery there. God's in control. But as we do, so we become. And God is inviting us into life. And so what do we do? We repent. This is the beauty of repentance. We are honest with ourselves and we say, God, by the power of your spirit, fill me and enable me to step towards the good because I don't want my heart to be hard and I don't want my heart to get harder. I want to find life. God wants you to have a breathing heart of flesh that is full of life and giving life to others and he's inviting you to that. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.